Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. While I'm feeling better, some of you don't know what that means, and that means you weren't here last week, but last week, Father Jonathan had to get up and say, despite the fact that it said Paul Donison was preaching the sermon, it was Father Jonathan preaching the sermon because I was under the weather. Um, so I'm feeling better, and I'm so thankful that Father Jonathan's able to step in at the last minute, although I'm thinking that every Saturday night I should probably start calling Father Jonathan now because he'll see my number on caller ID, and all I should do is just cough and then wait about 10 seconds before I say, oh, it, it, it's fine, everything's, everything's just just fine. But no, in all seriousness, I'm so thankful for Father Jonathan finishing up our series on Ruth. So we begin a new series this morning today. We begin a new series. And really the question behind this series is, what do you want? I mean, really, what do you want? Why are you here? Really, why are you here? The problem is, I think, if we're honest, though we can have lots of answers to what I want, if we're honest with ourselves deep down, we know that we don't really know what we want. We don't really know why we're here. It's interesting, at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus' first words, the first words spoken by Jesus in John's gospel, John 1.38, is a question. And he asks these two disciples of John the Baptist who start following him, he says, what are you seeking? He asks that question, what do you want? Why are you here following me? What are you seeking? And it's interesting that the rest of the Gospel of John is Jesus answering that question. He poses the question and then he answers it for us. What are you seeking? Let me tell you what you're seeking. We are walking through the seven I am statements that Jesus utters in the Gospel of John, beginning today with John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's fascinating about this phrase, John 6, 35, and we're really going to find this, I think, with each of the key phrases in each of these statements, is the entire gospel is contained in this one verse. The entire good news of what God is doing in Jesus Christ is contained in these I am statements. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me, whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, what Jesus is declaring over us this morning with this one verse is this. He's telling you and I this morning that there is a life that we are craving. There is a life that we desire. There is this real life out there that every human being is longing for and craving. And this life that we're craving, it's why Jesus came. Jesus came 
to give us the life that we have longed for, the life that has meaning and value and purpose, the life we're craving. But here's what's amazing. It's not just that Jesus comes into the world to give us the life that we're craving, but he's calling you and I and every human being on this planet right now, in this moment, to that very life. He's calling now, and he's calling now, and he's still calling now. He continues to utter this call over every single human being. See, first we need to recognize that there is a life we're craving. When Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life, the word life here he uses, and the word life that he uses almost everywhere where Jesus talks about life and living, is a particular Greek word. See, in Greek, there's two words for life. There's bios, which means your physical existence, your bios, your biology, and then there's zoe. And zoe life is this life that has meaning, that endures, the life that makes life worth living, that quality of life. You could say that bios is the quantity of your life and that zoe is the quality of your life. And Jesus is always talking about zoe, this life that makes life worth living. Now, in English, we don't have those two words, right? We don't able, we're not able to separate out the word life. But when we talk about real life, real living, what really matters, we always know which version of that word we're using, right? When, I remember when Monica and I were married 12 years, we went on a cruise together. See, when we got married, we were just finishing undergrad, getting ready for grad school. We were 21 and 22, dirt poor. And so that meant we were basically camping for our honeymoon. It was great, but it was camping. And so finally, after 12 years, I'm like, we can do the dream vacation. So we got on the cruise ship and we had the balcony suite. And I remember sitting there on the balcony suite on the cruise ship with my bride, with a beer in hand. And I said these words, this is living. Now, Monica didn't wonder in that moment when I said, this is living, whether my heart had not been beating for several moments before that and suddenly began starting up again or that my lungs weren't filling with air. It wasn't that she misinterpreted me as saying, I was dead a moment ago and now I'm alive. She knew what I'm saying is, this is what life is all about. Now, it was a terribly pagan thing to say in the context of this sermon today, but we know what we mean. When someone says, this is living, we know exactly what they're talking about, that zoe, that meaning, that purpose, that value, the life that makes life worth living. And we may fill in the blank of all kinds of things that make life worth living. But here's the amazing challenge, is that even in those moments when we can kick back and say, oh, this is living, when we get a taste of what we think really is true, meaningful life, Zoe life, there's still something missing. Even when we seem to have everything we think we want, we're still lacking. You know, it's interesting that King Charles said these words a few years ago. Isn't it weird to say King Charles? King Charles said a few years ago that there remains deep in the soul, he says, if I dare use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, that some ingredient that makes life worth living is not there. Now that's a king speaking. That's a king 
who's arguably, you think, got, kind of got everything, right? I mean, he's the king. He's got all the pomp, all the circumstance, all the power, all the titles, and he still says there's something missing that makes my life have value and meaning. You know, I love the story of Cyprian of Carthage. On September 15th, we celebrate the feast of Cyprian of Carthage. I know in your homes, that's a big feast day every September 15th. Um, But Cyprian of Carthage, one of the early church martyrs, third century Bishop of Carthage, what I love about his story, like so many other stories of these martyrs who stood under persecution, is how different his life looks. I mean, here's this guy who is arrested under the Roman Empire. It's under Emperor Valerian, who's at this point putting a new fresh wave of persecution on the church, brings him into the courtroom, and all that's required of this Christian bishop is simply, it's okay, you can believe in this man from Nazareth, but just offer sacrifice to Rome. Acknowledge Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. That's all that's required, and you can carry on. And Cyprian, his response is two words. I won't. I mean, after all this legal argument against him, his whole defense is, I won't. And so they sentence him to death. And as he's about to die at a sword, his final word is just as short. Two words. Grazie Deo. Thanks be to God. And I look at that life and I say, who lives like that? Who can have such a settled sense of life, a settled sense of vocation, such purpose and value that they can stand in the face of all that persecution and simply say, I won't. And grazia Deo, thanks be to God. How at the end, when it seems like everything's being taken from you, could he stand so firmly and so strong? And we look at that and say, that man has some kind of life that I want. It kind of reminds you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, I wonder if that was what was going through Cyprian's mind. Daniel chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, comes in, or the Chaldees king comes in and says, you know, unless you bow down and worship my image, you're going to go into the furnace, right? And what, what does Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego say? They say in verse 16 and 17 of Daniel chapter 3, they say, our God is able to save us, good faith, trust, The Lord will save us from your hand, O king, and the fiery furnace. But then they say this crazy thing in verse 18. They say, but if not, we will still not bow down and worship you. But if not, in other words, if God doesn't move his hand today, if the God who I know can save me doesn't move his hand, if the circumstances that are coming against me do not improve, I still will not bow down before you, O king. And you say, what kind of life is that? It's a life that has been Transformed. It's the life that we crave. And it's for that life that we crave that Jesus has come. See, that's what Jesus says. What he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, let me show you the bread of life. Let me provide you the bread of life. He says, I'm the provision. I'm the bread. Do you find it fascinating how audacious Jesus is in his claims? I mean, we get so used to the fact that he's, you know, Jesus, son of God. You know, of course, you know, he's, he's going to say things like, I am the bread of life. Can you imagine walking around with Jesus in Galilee, hearing him say things like, I am the bread of life, before Abraham was, I am, citing the divine name of God for himself? What's fascinating about Jesus, if you think about his life, grab a hold of this concept. 
I want you to think about this because we don't often think about Jesus this way. Jesus was always humble, but never modest. He was always humble, but never modest. He was never shy. People came along and said, well, do you think you're really the guy? He didn't go, well, no, not really. You know, he did hide his messianic role at times from his disciples saying, don't tell others. But with the disciples, he never hid it from them. He was always bold. He was always clear. I know exactly who I am. And guess what? I'm the one you need. I'm the one you need. I'm the life you crave. I am the bread. It's interesting through these seven I am statements, just listen to how audacious these claims are, right? He's saying in a world that is hungry and thirsty and looking for real meaning, I am the bread of life. Next week, little preview. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. In a world that is confused and has no idea what real truth is, I am the light. I am the truth. In John 10, to a world that is desperate in need of direction and guidance and I don't know what to do with my life, he says, I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep. To a world that is dying, that is facing the reality of death in every single moment, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And finally, to a world, not finally, Almost finally, in John 14, to a world that is saying, I don't know among all the plurality of options out there which one I'm supposed to choose. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in a world that is so untethered and so unrooted and so alone and wonders, do I have any place where I belong? He says in John 15, I am the true vine and you are now grafted into me. This is what Jesus is claiming. And it's the reason why you cannot separate Jesus from Christianity. You know, one of the interesting things that we need to recognize is that within our world, every other ideology and every other worldview and every other religion can have all kinds of interesting things, some of which we can identify as true because all truth is God's truth. But here's the thing you'll find is every other religion, every other ideology, every other worldview, you can separate the founder and the principal teacher from that religion or ideology and worldview and that worldview can still stand on its own. You following me? So for example, I've tried this, okay? So it's easier with ideologies, you know, like I'm a follower of Dr. Oz's, you know, medical whatever, and you say, well, what if it wasn't Dr. Oz who did that? They say, well, it doesn't matter. The medicine lines up, maybe, I don't know. But it doesn't matter where you take Oz out or not. The medicine lines up. I've done this with a Buddhist on a plane. Yes, you gotta be careful with this. You gotta be very kind. And I mean, genuinely, like respectful and loving. But I've said to a Buddhist on a plane who I've been chatting with, friendly, philosophical conversation, I've said, hypothetically, what if the Buddha never lived? And they'll say, well, we believe he... But I said, but I know you believe, but hypothetically, what if it wasn't the Buddha? What if it was Chuck that said these things? Like, would that really... And I, and I said, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just honestly saying it was somebody else. And, and, and they'll always say, well, no, it, it, it was them. But they'll reluctantly admit if you go far enough with them, well, hypothetically, yes, it doesn't have to be the Buddha. The, the statements and the, and the ideas stand on their own, right? I've even done this with a Muslim, yes, in the context of Islam. Now, you've got to be very careful because Muhammad is one of the five pillars of Islam. But I've said, again, you've got to be very careful and very respectful, but I've said on an airplane with a Muslim who we're having a really great conversation with, I've said, hey, just hypothetically, what if Muhammad wasn't the prophet? I know he was in your mind, so I'm, I'm not questioning that, but what if hypothetically he wasn't? Just, just what if it was somebody else? And he will insist it was Muhammad, but will, he came to the place where he could say, well, hypothetically, I guess it could have been someone else. And I said, that's the difference with Christianity. 
See, you cannot separate the person of Jesus from what we believe. We, we are not a program of beliefs. We're not a series of propositional ideas. We're about a person, a person of flesh and blood who moved into our creation, poured out his blood for us, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. His life is what we completely center our life around as Christians. You cannot separate Jesus from Christianity. It's all about a person. That's why he says constantly, come to me. I mean, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. He doesn't say, come to Moses or come learn a few ideas I've learned. He says, come to me. Go sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. Follow me. Come follow me. Jesus is radically centered on himself and his teaching because he knows that he is the life that we need. That's why he came. You know, it's interesting. This is why the Bible tells us that God is jealous for us. Some people really get tripped up on the idea of the jealousy of God. We had a whole seminar yesterday on the Ten Commandments where, you know, the opening commandments, right? Commandment one and two, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven image. And then God says in Exodus 20, verse five, for I am a jealous God. And you want to go, I don't know if I want a jealous God. Yes, you do. If you understand who the God of the Bible is, you want a jealous God because he is passionately committed to you, unrelentingly committed to you. He will have no rivals. Why? Because he's not offended at the competition. He knows the competition will obliterate you. He's jealous for you, not because the competition offends him. He's jealous for you because he knows the competing ideologies and religions out there will ultimately kill you. They will not provide what you need. This is why he is jealous for us. It's why Jesus says in verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I mean, let's be really clear. I've got a lot of care and like, and even a bit of love for a lot of food that perishes in this life, for a lot of the, the things of this life that are fading away. There's good things in this life that are gifts from God that we can enjoy. But when we make them ultimate things, when we make our life centered around those things as the center of our lives, they will ultimately destroy us. I used a quote last year. It's one of these, I think, quotes I could probably use at least once a year. People always end up emailing Father Jonathan afterwards to talk about it because it's a pretty provocative quote. It's from a guy named David Foster Wallace, who, again, a, a famous American novelist, Key here is non-believer. So this is not a Christian. This is not a theist. This is not someone who believes. Here's what he says about all the various competing influences in this world and what they do to us. He says, worship money and things and you'll never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, this is getting a little close to home, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. These things that are not Jesus, these Ways to life that are not Jesus himself will ultimately destroy us. Think of Augustine, you know, who about a hundred years after Cyprian 
At 30 years old, before he was a Christian, Augustine, 30 years old, was a professor of rhetoric in the capital city of Milan. Now, do you know what that means to be 30 years old and the professor of rhetoric in Milan? It means the emperor would sit in for most of your orations. He would literally give addresses and have the emperor of the known world listening to his philosophy and his arguments. He had everything he could have imagined, the power, the money, the the, the popularity. And when you read his confessions, as many of you have, he was miserable. Something desperately missing within him. And as he finally came to the one who could give him, who came in fact for him to have this life he craved for. When he came to Jesus, he then articulated this famous phrase. He said, for thou hast made us for thyself. Oh God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Jesus came to give us the life we crave. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. As Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that you would have life. Life to the fullest. See, there is a life that we all crave. And it's why Jesus came. But here's where I close. Jesus came to give us this life and he's calling us to it even now. Like today, in this moment, still. And even if you've heard that call before, the call continues. It's fascinating when you look at verse 35 and see how much gets packed in this one verse that this call Jesus gives to us when he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What we see in that quickly are three things. We see that it is a plain, clear call, that it is a persistent call, and that it is a call, plain, Persistent. My memory was with me right to that point. Plain, persistent. Oh, and personal. There you go. There you go. That's good. Now you'll remember it. It's a plain call. See, when he says, come to me, whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me, it's simple. He, he doesn't decorate it up. He simply says, just come, just believe. Now, when I say just come or just believe, I'm not downgrading or diminishing the profundity of you know, coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus. What I'm saying is don't decorate it. You notice he doesn't add any adjectives. He doesn't say, and you've heard sermons like this before, fully believe, truly believe. If you would completely believe, if you would truly come, if you'd fully come, if you'd completely come. No, what he says is just come. Come, stumbling as you come, come. Believe, even with a mustard seed of faith, just believe. See, there is no fully coming and completely coming and believing and deeply coming and believing because the full, complete, deep work has already been completed on the cross. For us to imagine that we need to 
screw up our courage and our will and really come to Jesus and really believe in Jesus is to devalue what he did on the cross. The full, complete, and absolute work was completed as he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bearing your sin and mine in his body on the cross. He has made us blemish-free and ready to come. Blemish-free and ready to believe. Just believe, just come. It's plain. But also, it's persistent. I like the fact that it's in the present tense. So it means, literally in the Greek, come and keep coming. Believe and keep believing. In other words, this isn't a one-and-done thing. Like you're just, oh, I, I, I came to Jesus you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, did you come again the next week and the next day and the next decade? We keep coming. We keep believing because we stumble and we fall and we're brought back again. The number one reason why people walk away from the faith is because they come to Jesus, they believe in Jesus, have some major moral failure in their life, and then say, I guess Christianity just didn't really take with me. And forget the fact that this is a, this is a faith that is based on a forgiving Savior who says, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot make this happen. Why does Jesus say in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you would believe in the one he sent. He does the work. He does the heavy lifting. We come and believe, and we come and believe again today and tomorrow, and that's why we're here. And finally, it's personal. Oh, I have to say this. It's personal. You know, when you hear verse 33, you know, he, he, he gives bread for the life of the world. You can think, oh, that's huge and cosmic and significant. Yeah, it is, but guess what? The word whoever is in singular. He's talking about you. Whoever. Each one. Each individual. Each person who comes and each person who believes this is yours he does it for the world but he also does it for you each and every day calling to you would you come would you believe afresh today I close with this that a parishioner shared with me a couple years ago a beautiful story of where as he was coming up to the communion rail, and, and by the way, I mean, I, I've been a terrible Anglican today. I could have used this entire sermon about the bread of life to just talk about the Eucharist. But I mean, isn't it clear that every week Jesus gives us this meal to say, all right, keep coming, keep coming back, keep believing. Here's the pledge. Here's the way that you remember and live into this reality of who you are again. Come and believe again at the rail. But he was coming up to the rail. And you know how it is with our Ushers, how they have direct everyone. You know, they almost need air traffic controlling wands at times to sort of get everyone to their places. And he, he was coming up to the corner and it was, it was just a little crowded at the corner. And, and, and he just felt like there was no room. So he kind of held back. And that was kind of symbolic of where he felt he was at that moment with the journey he'd been walking, really kind of unworthy, not really appropriate. Why even am I here? And he said he suddenly felt this firm grip on his arm. And one of our older gentlemen, long-serving members, grabbed him by the arm and pulled him down beside him to kneel at the rail with these words, there's always room for you here. There's a life we're craving. It's why Jesus came. And he's calling you to it and every single human being on this planet including the person sitting next to you and the next door neighbor and that guy at work that drives you crazy he's calling each and every one of us to that life today
This is what we want. This is why we're here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Come and believe again. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.